Hello, and thank you for checking out this episode of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E? How do we beat the NHS winter crisis? And how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all? We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if we are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. The From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by Healthcoms Consulting, who are part of the PLMR group. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the From the Frontline podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking all things the NHS workforce. Uh, We're delighted to have Professor Roger Kirby from the Royal Society of Medicine with us on this week's episode. Uh, Roger, before we get into the conversation about uh, the current state of the NHS workforce, it would be great to get a little bit of a sense of your background and experience in this area. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, I'm uh, Professor Roger Kirby. I'm basically a prostate surgeon and I uh, was a consultant at Bart's for 10 years and St. George's for 10 years. And then I set up a uh, thing called the Prostate Centre. And um, I was lucky enough for, to be elected president of the Royal Society of Medicine, which is based at uh, number one Wimpole Street. We've got 20,000 members. And um, yeah, we were influential, I think, in, in uh, medical circles in terms of uh, uh, education Lifelong education for doctors is what we're really about. Well, we're delighted to have you on on the podcast. And I suppose just as a starting point for our conversation, a statistic that I've read in the newspapers and kind of gets thrown around in conversations about the NHS workforce is there's a kind of broad figure of about 10,000 vacancies for doctors in the NHS at the moment. I suppose from your perspective, it would be great to get a sense of whether that level of vacancy uh, of doctors in the NHS, is that a particularly new phenomenon? Is that vacancy something that is currently at an unprecedented level? Have we seen vacancy rates like this before? And also to get a sense of the sort of the potted history, I suppose, of how we've got to this point of having approximately 10,000 vacancies in terms of doctors in the NHS? Sure, well, good, very good question. We've got 10,000 doctors and more than 100,000 staff shortage, um, if you include social care and nursing, but we'll focus mainly on the the, the medics, the doctors, uh, and the shortage there. Yeah, it is pretty unprecedented. The politicians will say, well, you know, we've never had so many people working in the NHS before, but the problem is we've never had the workload that uh, we're now facing in the NHS before. Now, we've got an aging population, we've got a waiting list of more than uh, 7 million people, we've got uh, uh, austerity coming down the track, you know, with recent uh, political developments, uh, and we've got a very overstretched NHS. And that overstretch uh, is really the word that um, doctors are facing right now, because there are rotor gaps, and it's difficult to get people to do on call, so the ones that are available still have to do extra work, they have to stay uh, in the hospital overnight more often, and that puts pressure on them and their families. Uh, and uh, the, uh, there's also a shortage of consultants too. There's, uh, in fact, uh, 
50% of uh, vacancies uh, for consultant positions last year were left um, empty. They couldn't appoint anybody. And quite a few of posts, there were no applicants at all for it. So that's unprecedented. And it in- illustrates that um, something has changed in society. And uh, being a doctor in the NHS is no longer as appealing as it used to be. So we need to do something about that quite urgently. I'm interested by that, uh, those vacancy rates at a consultant level. Um, I think there's a lot of conversation about how we increase the number of students entering the NHS at the most junior level as a way of rectifying these current vacancy rates. But I suppose when you get to the consultant level, is it that there's just a sense that there isn't enough doctors coming through the pipeline and reaching the consultant level to fill the required vacancies? Or is there a sense that consultants are leaving the profession, they're leaving the NHS? Um, what is that, particularly at that sort of that rung of the NHS at consultant level? What are the causes of the vacancies there in particular? Well, it's, it's a bit of both of those things. Um, we're not training enough doctors. We're training at the moment 7,500 uh, medical students every year. Um, and in fact, about 30,000 uh, uh, students apply to go into medicine, and we only take about a quarter of those. So that's a bit crazy. And these are all students who are getting three A's and uh, S1 levels at, um, at A level. So they all could be doctors. So you know, I had to give evidence to Jeremy Hunt at his Health and Social Care Committee a few weeks ago down in Westminster. And I said to him, you know, clearly we need to train more doctors because uh, the... the uh, it's crazy having these people who want to be medics, but they can't get into medical school because the numbers are capped. So, you know, one thing they could do immediately is increase the number of, of, of uh, students getting into medical school. But, you know, of course, it takes about seven years to qualify, six or seven years to qualify, and then about another 10 years before they can apply for a consultant. So even if they did this tomorrow, you know, you've got to wait 17 years before they can apply for jobs as, uh, as consultants. Um, and then the other problem, the ones that we have in post at the moment are leaving early. You know, the, uh, the, some of the, of the trainee doctors are going off to New Zealand or uh, Australia where the, the work conditions are better and the salaries are higher. Uh, and I suppose it's a bit sunnier down there in Australia too. So that's a bit of an added attraction. And um, the more senior doctors are, are leaving. They're retiring early, then coming back to work. Um, uh, for mainly because of the, the uh, strange arrangement with pensions, whereby the pension uh, are set up at the moment that if they over earn the amount of their, uh, their allowed, their pension allowance, they then get taxed on that. So a lot of senior doctors are saying, listen, what's the point in working? Because I'm actually being taxed more for the extra hours I do because I'm being penalised because it's, I'm not allowed to put any more in my pension. So that also is a problem that um, can be fixed. There's a uh, clinician called Tony Goldstone who's been um, campaigning on this, who's a much more expert on pension rules than I am, but that is a problem. And the ones that do retire, some of them come back, they retire and return, but you know, once they retire from full-time um, consultant jobs, they, they return, but somehow they lose their commitment, they're not so keen to work so so many hours do so many clinics so they come back part-time and uh, that causes problems because you, you know, really you need consultants who are fully committed to uh, their post in, in the NHS in, in any given hospital to for continuity of patient care it's safer to have people there 
And we're employing far too many locums. You know, the, the problem is that locum are paid more than the regulars. So there's a big incentive for junior level to say, listen, um, I won't take a, a regular post. I'll just join a locum agency and I'll do a few weeks here, a few weeks there and get paid more than the ones who are in the regular jobs. And that's a bit crazy. So training more doctors, although it costs about a quarter of a million pounds to train a doctor, which is one of the reasons why it's capped, I suppose, training more doctors in the end would save money because more doctors would mean less locums. And locum rates are really very high, especially in places where it's hard to get doctors to work, you know, in, in less, uh, less well-appointed parts of the country. So, Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested, um, you mentioned continuity of care as being a, a key uh, a key issue in terms of uh, when consultants are available and the roles that they are taking. Um, it would be great to get a sense of, from your perspective, the impact of these workforce shortages and vacancies on patient care. Um, I suppose from my perspective, it's really interesting to have that kind of impact as a added element of this story, really, beyond the sure. figures um, in terms of what the reality for NH the NHS looks like. Well, I'll give you a personal example, because I moved, uh, after 10 years as a consultant at Barts, I moved to St. George's. Uh, it was a kind of promotion, but also it's a bit nearer where I live in Wimbledon to work, so I didn't have to travel so far. So I was incentivized to move, but they'd had a locum consultant filling my post, the post I took there, consultant urologist, for about a year whilst they'd uh, um, filled the post, which I had to do an interview for and fill. But I, I had to deal with all the complications that um, that particular consultant, not naming any, any specific names, but obviously, you know, he, they'd had a, somebody in that post who wasn't really a highly experienced prostate surgeon. So though I had to deal with so many patients who literally been harmed, you know, with incontinence and uh, incomplete um, excision of cancers and so on and so forth. It took about a year or maybe two years to put right all the damage that had been done by that. You know, he'd done his best, but he troubles he wasn't really uh, experienced enough to be able to work at that level. An interesting perspective on this particular situation, because I suppose a lot of the conversation that we currently have is around the delays of care and the backlog in terms of those that are yet to receive care or experiencing delays into them. I suppose just so that I'm sure that I'm hearing you correctly, is there a concern as well that the, the care that is being delivered, even when it is being delivered, is being impacted by the vacancies as well as those that are yet to receive the care that they require? Yes, it's inevitable if you don't have people in posts, in permanent positions, especially at consultant level, because the consultants lead their team. So you need a team leader that is there in his job or her job. Increasingly, we see more and more women now in consultant jobs. About 30% of the um, consultant workforce are, are women now. Um, uh, if you don't have a permanent person in post, then the whole team um, so, you know, loses morale, and uh, that has patient safety implications. I mean, and, and the point about women is, is important because you know, what we need is more flexibility in the system because um, it's great, of course, we need equality, uh, diversity and inclusion, equality between the sexes in um, who, who gets the consultant jobs, the top jobs in the uh, NHS, 
but women generally speaking uh, are not prepared to work uh, the hours that, um, that that men used to work i don't think perhaps we don't work as, as many hours as we used to but literally you know when i was training we were working 18 90 hours a week a bit crazy really in training Women don't want to do that. They're more committed to their family, um, and uh, they want, you know, a, a, a better uh, a life, ba- work-life balance. Um, and, and I think so. We have to build in more flexibility into the system, and possibly, you know, consider childcare, for example. That would help for the young um, consultants. You know, pe- people will get a consultant job age 32, 33, 34, and many women, including. My children, I've got two, two daughters, you know, they put off having, uh, starting a family until they're 35 or 36 these days, or so busy with their careers. So, you know, you'll see that newly appointed uh, female consultants will have um, young children, and it's really difficult for them to, uh, to work uh, in, with, in the rather rigid system that we have in the NHS. They need more flexibility, they need help with childcare, uh, and uh, we just need to build in more flexibility um, in, in, into the system. That's really interesting. And I suppose um, you mentioned the current situation with pensions as one of the immediate uh, barriers that is currently facing workforce retention. I suppose in terms of other immediate changes that could be made in terms of um, filling vacancy rates or ensuring that those potentially thinking about moving outside of the NHS or leaving the NHS stay. Um, is there any other thoughts that you'd raise on that particular point? Well, I mean, there's a whole list of things that we could do to improve the situation. I mean, pay is a big issue. The junior doctors are just uh, being balloted um, for strike action after Christmas. I mean, it's kind of ironic that um, Jeremy Hunt, who uh, was uh, uh, Minister for Health, during the junior doctor's strike that lasted over a year, and then he, he imposed the contract on them. There's still some unhappiness about that uh, from the doctor's point of view. But um, the, the, so he'll be Chancellor of the Exchequer, assuming he survives more than a few weeks. You can't, we seem to be swapping chances rather rapidly just uh, at the present moment in time. So, yeah, pay is one thing. Conditions are another very important thing. You know, we need to make uh, working in the NHS more appealing to. Um, to doctors, so um, the I the, uh, so many of the complaints I get about the IT that um, the computer systems are not really joined up in hospitals. They the junior doctors they move around. There's a sort of churn of their rotations where they move from one post to another to another, uh, which is disruptive to them, of course. But um, most disruptive uh, of all is you move to a new post and you have to learn new passwords for uh, all the different computer systems that the hospital has. Uh, sometimes, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 different systems. Uh, and it's not joined up in the way that a bank is joined up. You know, you go to the bank, you get your money out, you get your balance, and you can rely on the computer systems there. NHS computing um, needs to be uh, improved. So um, flexible working, better childcare, uh, better pay, better working conditions, and, and that would include hot meals and better living conditions for the, um, the rooms to stay overnight when you're on call. The on-call facilities for junior doctors are pretty awful, and uh, there's no availability of hot meals outside hours, hours and so on. 
Um, again, I don't want to be too nostalgic about the good old days when I was a junior doctor, but we used to have a doctor's mess in those days. Uh, mess was actually the word because it was a bit of a mess, but it was a place where doctors could get together uh, and socialize and network and support each other, even though we were you know, working really hard in those days. So we've lost a lot of the kind of camaraderie uh, that there used to be. Uh, and the hospitals, of course, have got a lot bigger. Um, so there isn't that sort of ability to socialize um, within the hospital network. So there's, there's a lot you could do. You know, I mean, um, if you think what's happening outside medicine in the city at the moment, the big city buildings, you know, for the, the uh, management consultants, the bankers, the hedge fund dealers and so on, they're, they're trying to attract people back into the office because everybody loves working from home. But you can't, you know, do an operating list from home. You've got to be in there. A lot of healthcare, you have to be in. But in other um, walks of life, where actually the pay, of course, is, is considerably better, and the bonus, Christmas bonuses don't go uh, don't go amiss either. I'm, I'm sure for the hedge fund dealers. But they're, they're tempting people back into the office by improving the working environment that um, people are. You know the. Uh, gyms, swimming pools, etc., etc. Well, I'm not really seriously suggesting that you should have a gym and a swimming pool in the hospital for the doctors, but I do think you could do a lot to improve the their over their on-call facilities, the on-call rooms, the hot meals at night, and um, then childcare for uh, the young those with young families to help them, especially in school holidays. You know, uh, and I suppose I mean other things. You know, they. And younger doctors often complain they're not allowed time off for important events, you know, weddings, funerals, um, bar mitzvahs, whatever. Um, there are some life events that you really have to be there to, you know, to sustain your connections with your family. But people say, oh, you know, you're on call that weekend. We can't, we can't find anybody to cover you, so you can't have the time off. And that's disruptive, you know, that, that destroys morale. You only have to miss you know, a couple of your, your brother or sister's wedding or something like that it's because you can't find anybody to cover you. You think, well, listen, why am I doing this? You know, maybe maybe I need to think of another career. So having spent a quarter of a million pounds training a doctor, it's a tragedy when they go off and, you know, apply for a job at McKinsey's and uh, start working in the city. Yeah, absolutely. I'm keen to finish our conversation on the point that you mentioned around um, the need to uh, be training more medical students to join the NHS. And you mentioned that current figure of about seven and a half thousand medical students a year. I'm just thinking structurally and more long term in terms of how we secure the future health of the NHS workforce and fill these vacancies long term. I just wondered if there was anything, if you wanted to pick up on that point around medical placements, but also more broadly in terms of structural changes that needed to happen to assure that future viability of the NHS workforce, really. Well, we've got to train more doctors, but as I said before, and it's going to be about 17 years before they actually come uh, get to the level of applying for a consultant job. So in the interim, um, we, we probably need to uh, recruit more in, uh, international medical graduates. And actually, there's a paper coming up in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine on the Medical Training Initiative, the MTI, where medical and dental graduates worldwide are encouraged to come and train in the UK for, for 24 months. So we, we don't want to brain drain and take doctors away from countries that need them, like Ghana, Nigeria, 
South Africa, etc. But we do want to bring them over to fill the gaps and to train them over here and to also build connections, you know, to make um, uh, connections between um, countries, African countries, uh, Southeast Asian countries, etc., etc. Et and I think those um, those initiatives, you know, two-year placements uh, to come over here, all different levels, you know, it could be consultant, it could be um, uh, foundation year, it could be later in the uh, in the training system before they become consultants. So I think there's an awful lot we could do uh, that would actually improve, you know, the, the, the quality of the doctors for those countries. We definitely don't want to be stealing uh, doctors from um, developing countries and get them to work over here. But we, we do we welcome them to come over, join the NHS, train with us, interact with us. And maybe we could even send some of our graduates uh, to go work in, in, um, in those countries for uh, a couple of years, a sort of exchange thing. So there's a lot to be done. It's not actually published that paper. It's due to come out, I think, very soon in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. But there's a lot more discussion about that initiative there. Professor Kirby, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Um, I have no doubt that the discussions around the NHS workforce will continue uh, continue to rumble on over the coming weeks and months. And But I hope that the points that you have raised will be of real help to our listeners in terms of informing their conversations going forward as to what steps can be taken to ensuring the future health of our NHS workforce. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email fromthefrontline at healthconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.